how do you personally balance being a working mom and you know family time and all that stuff? Yeah, I don't know what that word balance is that you speak of. Right, Thank right. You. What is balance, right? <laughs> Before they get in your business, be in charge of your business. Own it cause it's your business, your business, business. Handle all of your business, value all of your business. You say you're minding your business, my business. Welcome to Montgomery and Company. I'm Renee Montgomery and listen, so we have some fun today. We bring it to the pod. I don't know if you saw Darren Rovell's tweet about women's college basketball, but we had some input. We had some things to say about it. Swin Cash, yes, UConn Husky fam. She comes in to bring it to the pod as well because she's not our guest this week, but Swin will be joining us next week. We also are going to have a little of this, a little bit of that. Whatever you like, we're going to talk about it. And then as our guest this week, we have some powerful women coming through. Sonia Richards-Ross, yes, the Olympic gold medalist, now analyst, and also founder of Mommy Nation is coming through. And then we also have Senator Halpern, who's making changes here in Georgia. Check it out. What's up, good people? Okay, so March Madness is all the way upon us. And I was watching the game with Buzz Williams, and he's a coach for Texas A&M. And they were asking him about how is his team playing so inspired? And Texas A&M, if people don't know, they were running through the SEC tournament. They were really just on one. And so they were beating teams higher ranked than them. They were a constant upset alert. The tournament is four days in a row or three days in a row. And people are like, are they going to get tired? You know, how are you doing it, coach? And he got up there and he articulated it so well. He said, you know, we all heard of the red pill and the blue pill, right? And, you know, he was like, okay, so the red pill, for those that don't know, is the truth pill, where if you take the red pill, you're going to know the full truth and you're going to have to just handle the truth as it comes. And he says, that's what I do every day to my team. I give them the red pill because what do you do with 20 year olds that have social media? They can see that they weren't the five star recruits. They can see that they aren't the top seed. They can see that they necessarily aren't supposed to win that game. So what do you do with them? How do you like you give them the red pill? So I tell them, no, we don't have as many All-Americans as they have on that team. And no, we don't have as many recruits as they have. But what we do have is an opportunity to play against those five star recruits, against those draft picks against those lottery picks you have an opportunity to play the game and play against them and he said you know when you give the red red pill you got to be able to take it so my guys you know they give me the red pill too and say coach you can't get technicals and take points away from us you know we need all the points we can get but every day I give them the red pill and every day they give me the red pill and that's how they stay motivated because they stay grounded and they stay focused. And so I thought that that was, you know, it was a sports analogy about March Madness and rising to the occasion and just knowing your reality. Cause when you know your strengths and your weaknesses, you can control things better. And so I don't know, but to me that was inspiring. So may we all be able to give the red pill and take the red pill. And one last thing, we bleed blue over here. Let's go. pod and that's where the conversations that happen on social media we want to have those conversations right here on moco 
And the topic of the conversation today is women's college basketball. No shocker alert. It's always going on. There's always a conversation happening. But this time, a little interesting statement. So Darren Ravel is a sports betting journalist. And so there was a commercial by Buick. And the commercial, I thought it was a great commercial. It said on April 1st, 2018, Arike Agumbawale hit one of the greatest buzzer beaters in NCAA history. But you probably didn't see it because over 40% of athletes are women, but they get less than 10% of media coverage. Buick is committed to raising that percentage. So I thought that that was a clever commercial. In the background of the commercial, you could hear the announcer saying, what a crazy shot, and the crowd goes around, Enrique Agumba Wale does it again. And you can hear all the sounds from the commercial, but you can't see it. You can't see the shot, and that was the point that Buick was trying to make. I remember seeing that commercial when I was at a hotel, and I was like, okay, Buick, I see you. And then I saw the tweet from Darren Rovell that said, this spot by Buick is really weird. Women get less coverage during March Madness because there's less madness, fewer upsets, and the bracket is predictable. That's all. It's not the same product. So he felt like he needed to say that. Now, when I first saw it, I thought, huh, that's a weird tweet because I don't see any facts in that tweet. It felt opinionated, but it was stated like it was factual. So then somebody tweeted. And when I say somebody, it was actually Jack Settleman. Shouts to Jack. He was an FCF owner alongside like, you know, I met him last year at the FCF beef. So Jack says, Darren, Enrique's shot was a buzzer beater to win the national championship. I've seen Chris Jenkins shot one million times. The majority of the sports fans have probably never even seen Enrique's. Literally the point of the commercial and campaign. And then somebody writes to Darren and says, Darren, you know, there's so many other things you can do with your platform from women that your daughter will thank you for one day. Be an ally, be an advocate, support. Instead, she'll see this tweet and the million of comments that disagree with you. And then Darren, to my surprise, responds back and says, I support my daughter by being on the sidelines for her and encouraging her to play. I don't support my daughter by begging others to watch her. And then the guy responds back to Darren and says, Darren, you watch her on the sideline. That's awesome. Hopefully she's playing professional one day. And if she is, I wonder if your tone on begging people to watch her will change then. And Darren, to my shock and amazement, once again responded. We're all shocked. He keeps doubling down. He writes back and says, I would want her to earn eyeballs on her own merit, just like I want her to get a job on her own merit for someone else to make the decision whether she is worthy or starring for them. Not because I beg to take her for the position. So Darren said it with his chest. He said it multiple times. He doubled down. He doesn't think that women's basketball is worthy of the attention that they're getting. Jamel Hill, of course, got a hold of it, and she had a lot of things to say, and she ended it with, just say you felt like taking a bleep on women's basketball and leave it at that. So with that, I'm bringing it to the pod crew. Woo, Lord. Darren, what's going on, boo-boo? Where is his wife? <laughs> like, are there women in his life? Well, uh, well, he has a daughter. We know that. We have, I mean, but still, why would you want not want them to have the same opportunities as everybody else. I don't understand why they're so upset about sharing TV time with women. It's like they don't even want us to be seen. It's, it's amazing. It's like we're not taking away from your viewers. We're just saying we want to be viewed too. I don't understand why they're so everyone gets so upset by this TV time. It's like 
why just why are you so upset i wish my husband would say something <laughs> like that because then the thing is is that i'm saying like you said you gotta think about it from her standpoint is he's basically saying oh well i want my daughter to earn eyeballs that earned eyeballs and didn't get it and it wasn't because it wasn't worth seeing it was because people like him don't believe it's worth seeing mm. so he can't even say it was an amazing shot because i want to know did he even see the shot that they're talking about you know that's another thing too like if you don't have exposure, how do you even know? How can you speak intelligently about it? So I don't know, but his daughter going to love him one day for that. She's going to come back and get him for that one. <laughs> okay, these are the type of men who are in the boardrooms, the back rooms, making the decisions about how women are treated, how women are paid, etc. I can remember back in the day when we were negotiating salaries or whatever, and I was told that, Women's salary versus men's salary were different because men had to take care of families. And I looked at it and said, have you seen that mostly all the households in America are women? Men aren't leading the households, but this is one of the things they used to say. We have to pay men more because they take care of families. So, again, this Darren uh, gentleman, he has a totally wrong view of that. And he's one of those type of people who would tell his daughter, you go to college, honey, find you a rich person going to school to be a doctor or a lawyer, and then you tag on to them because that's the only way I can see you having a good life. Mm. Hmm. You know, and that's actually a thing. Like, they call it, like, I think princess syndrome or something like that, like, where you, you know, like, kind of like how women, how we grew up thinking that we need somebody to come save us, like how we see in the fairy tales and that we have to marry somebody that will get us out of whatever situation that we're in. And, you know, as, as I didn't even know that he was a journalist. I thought he was, like, a athlete or some kind of person who actually plays sports to even be commenting on this but I'm like wait he's a journalist he's not even an athlete and he's saying these things I'm like okay so first of all as a journalist I think that it is extremely extremely just irresponsible because like what you said Snug he is part of the gatekeepers he, he's part of one of those gatekeepers that that decides on how much coverage women's sports get and things like that so he is contributing to that narrative and to answer your question I like He's not a basketball player. <laughs> yeah, so yeah I'll, just, I'm like, I'll just say that. I'm like, wait, he, he seems is not like somebody a who was player. like like sour, who was like, look, don't take, you know, like I, I can understand. Well, no, I'm, let me take that back. I can't understand even if an athlete says that because I feel like a male athlete, a lot of male athletes understand that women athletes deserve that same respect. I will say a lot of them do. But the fact that he's a journalist speaking like this, he understands the importance of media coverage and, and framing and things like that. And the fact that he's saying these kind of and things girl dad of all things a girl dad dad, a girl dad that's the tragedy that's the real tragedy because when you start to see like we've seen where maybe a guy his whole life hasn't really been women-centric and hasn't really been the ultimate woman supporter but as soon as they have them a little daughter you watch them transform you watch that dad melt for his daughter you watch him be interested in women's sports and interested in anything that could affect his baby girl right we saw it with Kobe really Bryant and Gigi you know like Kobe Bryant yeah you know and, like yeah. he he was he was changing the game he was changing women, the way that people see women's basketball he was rocking the gear he was pouring into women's basketball and it gives me goosebumps 
Beckham's just talking about it because it was a huge loss for everybody in all communities, not just sports communities, but, you know, just for the culture, for the sports culture, for women's basketball culture. It was it was a huge loss because he was advancing the game. He was pouring into the game and talking about how important it is, you know, for us to have, you know, eyes on it and, and for the media to pay attention to it. And it's so sad because, you know, they say, oh, well, they don't have a daughter. Oh, they don't have any sisters. I mean, I don't know any men who came here without a mother. So anyway, you got a woman in your life that you should be thinking about how women are treated, how women are, uh, you know, taken care of and all of that kind of stuff. Because everybody, all men came here with a mother. (laughs) And that's a fact. And that's, that's the tragedy of it because it's like, you know, you can almost give guys a pass because it's like, yeah, you were living in this male-dominated world where you didn't know that there was this whole other side of the world where women are getting a third of the payment or salaries and women are getting 10% of the media coverage or women are getting 10% of the venture capital funds. Less than 10%. Less than. And maybe you lived in a male-dominated society, so that wasn't on your radar. But for you to have a daughter now and you to carry the tag girl dad, you're supposed to blaze the path for her. You're supposed to be fighting the people that say that about something that she could do. You should be upset if somebody says like, oh, man, your daughter isn't going to be worthy of the eyes, even though she hit an incredible shot that whether she was a woman or a man is deserving of those eyes. I mean, what will your daughter think of that? Like, that's the tragedy of it, because that's where your confidence can come from. I remember, look, my Diddy, when I was playing I knew that he thought I was the best player on the court. Like, I knew it. There wasn't nobody that could tell me any different than that my Diddy thought that I had the skill set and the capabilities to play. Before I went to UConn, he told me I was a UConn talent. Like, before, (laughs) and I'm in West Virginia. And then before I got up to be an All-American and I was at UConn, he was like, you're an All-American. That's what my Diddy did. So that girl, dad, I was like, and so I played like it. I had a confidence about myself because he had that confidence in me. So now imagine the reverse where this girl hears her dad talk about, well, yeah, y'all got to earn it and hitting an incredible shot, fade away in the corner with two hands up to win a national championship with no time on the clock. That ain't good enough. That's a tough pill to swallow if you're his daughter. Yeah, and good for Buick for highlighting that. You know, when we saw that commercial, it really did catch my attention because it wasn't even like a, it wasn't very visual. There was nothing there. Like you said, it was a black screen with words and you just hear it and you just hear the excitement. Then you're like, oh, wait, let me pay attention. It makes you pay attention. And so good for, you know, I feel like Buick is on top of it as far as, um, you know, brands paying attention to, to women's sports. And so I feel like we're going to see see you know a lot more of this and good for them for being one of the first ones to put it on a national scale the only thing I could say about this is that I would want to know is like what moment did he think that that wasn't a shot worth seeing that's the moment what moment in that whole entire play did you think ain't nobody want to see this because I dare to believe that a whole lot of people wanted to see it. And a whole lot of people didn't know that they wanted to see it until they had the option to see it. So if he really believes that there's nothing going on in women's sports, then let him stay over there. Everyone else, let's work together and get a scene. Because that's he's the point. Part of the you got to leave people where they are. You got to <laughs> leave people where they are. You yeah. know he ain't, he's not going to be invited to go nowhere with us. There's nothing going to be worthy to him. Then if that's not worthy after she had just hit a game winner the game before, because see, if he was following the story 
sideline, there had been some momentum built. She had just came off of a game winner and Arike does it again. Like, right. that's not worthy. Like, what, what makes him think that he has the credibility to even speak on that? As much scrutiny as women go through, what makes him think that as a man in general that he can even speak on, oh, March Madness, women's NCAA doesn't have as much madness. Like, well, I, I want to know how he's going to feel when his daughter grows up because it's easy to say, you know, it's easy to put away things when you're not, when that situation doesn't necessarily affect you directly because his daughter's probably young. I'm not sure how old she is, but when she grows up and she starts getting into extracurricular activities, then he's going to see how limited she is compared to males. She, he, he's going to see that firsthand. Well, let's just compare him. I saw uh, something on TV the other day when they were running through Selection Sunday or whatever. Maybe they're right when they say he didn't play basketball or whatever because I saw Kevin Durant and another NBA player talking about Caitlin Clark. So I value their opinions more than I do his. I'm just telling you. You're right. Actually, Right. Right. <laughs> they play basketball and they watch and him that's and play him and say, that's hey, true. This <laughs> yeah. that's good. Yeah. And to that point, Snookabooka, there's so many NBA players that watch, support, endorse the WNBA, not just the WNBA, but women's the women's NCAA tournament. And, you know, Paul had, I saw a stat that Paul put that in the past five years, there's been five different winners. So for him to say it's predictable, that's not factual. That's that's fake you news, can fact check that news. predictability. It just seems like he just wants attention or something. <laughs> like, yeah, he need to get his numbers up. That's what it is. He needed clicks. He needed clicks. That's all he right. needed. And he he's part of the narrative. When people say media is the problem, he is the media, and you problem. see that he is that problem. And so for me, it's tough because I actually enjoy his content. I enjoyed when he'll tell us the the interesting stats of who betted the most on this event coming up. Like I actually enjoyed his content. Which is why I was caught off guard, which I'm sure a lot of us were, to where this not factual, no actual stats in the tweet, nothing to to give it any substance. It was strictly opinionated and then it just wasn't even true and it was wrong. And so for me, it kind of is like that age old rule. If you don't have nothing nice to say and you don't have any facts, maybe don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Snuck! Maybe don't say anything at all is what I was going to say. But okay, step don't, li- don't listen to him at all. <laughs> okay, so my homie, UConn fam, Swin Cash just entered the chat. So we're going to just bring it right onto the pod with her as well. So Swin, you've been in the basketball community for a long time. I know you've seen Darren Ravel's tweet. What do you think about it? First of all, I think his tweet was lazy and we see it all the time. It's just like these lazy takes when you aren't even paying attention to what's happening. So I think for me, the whole thing about there's not enough madness, things aren't happening. Well, are you paying attention? That's number one. And then number two is like, are you, do you like basketball? Because if you like basketball, like the in its purest form of just like, let me get to the strategy. Let me get to the game. Let me see the threes. Let me see the crossovers and all that. All that is in the women's game. So I just don't like people that have lazy takes that if you just like Duncan and you like certain things about the men's game, I can respect you saying that and then move along. But to sit here because you like one thing and you aren't open-minded to just enjoy the game uh, of women's basketball itself, then that's your problem. That has nothing to do with everybody else. And these people have these huge platforms forever giving their hot takes, 
but they never have the substance to back it up. That's where I just am just like, carry on. So I know I told you guys that was Swin Cash, but in case you don't know who Swin Cash is, she's a three-time WNBA champion, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, two-time NCAA champion, and oh, by the way, the first black female NBA executive. And we're going to have more conversations with her next week, so tap in. Coming up next, we have Sonya Richard Ross, the four-time Olympic gold medalist who also is the founder of Mommy Nation. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sonia Richards Ross. I had heard your interview, Untold Stories, and it was incredible. You talked about just the Olympics, your mindset where you were there. And I always wanted to ask a track superstar because I like runners on your mark, get set. What are you thinking? What are you feeling before they blow the gun? Like, what is that moment? Well, I'll tell you what. I feel like all the nerves that you feel are prior to when you get in the blocks. Like, I think what a lot of people, uh, you know, of course, because they've never experienced, can't understand is we're with our competition for like an hour before the race. So like you're moving through the zones. So it's like this mental game, like we're doing our drills and we're just all together there. Like, you know, you're like trying to do all these things to kind of psych your competition out. And then the walk out of the tunnel, then you walk onto the track, it's like 90,000 people there. You have one shot to win this gold medal. And so I think all of the emotions and the intensity is felt prior to the starter saying on your marks. I'll be honest, when he says that, I am zoned out. I don't know where I'm at, who's there. And I am just really focused on my race. I think the the energy, the nerves is all like leading up. And then when I get in the blocks, it's like, okay, Sam, like push, pace, position, poise. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Let, let's go. You know, it's like you just block it all out at that point. But before, whoo, the nerves is high. <laughs> track superstar because you know in sports like basketball I don't have just one shot like I can miss my first shot make my second have a whole bad game and recover and you guys get that one shot and you know on Mocha we talked about it like you know 
we're a family business, but we're also competitive and we work together as a family. Look, we just had a call this morning and if we weren't family, people might be concerned, but no, <laughs> oh, no one's concerned because, you know, as family, you can get after it. And your husband is Aaron Ross. And if that name sounds familiar to people, yes, it's the great player from Texas, national champion, two-time Super Bowl champ. What are the dynamics like working with family? Because we work with family, you work with your husband. What is that like? Um, You know, I think that because our relationship started out where, obviously, like you said, we met at Texas, both elite athletes. And I think that we were able to build a relationship around, you know, this excellence that we were both trying to create in sports. And so I don't know if I could have done it with anybody else because you talk about <laughs> a thousand sit-ups every night and not eating fried Ooh. foods and going to bed early. It's like, what? you know, who else is going to get that except for someone oh else who's God. also trying to be great in his sport. So, you know, for us, I think we've always, we always kind of leave work with work. When I would come home from training, it would just be our time. I wouldn't necessarily bring all of that stuff to him and vice versa. And when we even work together now, it's like we have work time. We try to stick to like five o'clock, it's over. And then it's just time for us to enjoy each other. And I think that's what makes it work. (laughs) I love that. No, I love it too, because you made a good point. When you're on your grind, and a lot of people have seen it when, you know, you watch shows where people are trying to lose weight and they're trying to lose weight, but their family is eating anything. Mm-hmm. And they're like, it's so hard to lose yes. weight when everyone else is not losing anything. But I, you talked about, you know, we talked about athletes being competitive. And I saw probably the funniest video I've seen. I was stalking you before this interview, just so you know. <laughs> and and two years ago, boy, did you dust your son in a race. <laughs> and mm, I, I, saw <laughs> I loved every thing about it you gave him a green mouth head start and then you appear on the screen just like a blur flying by i'm <laughs> all the way here for this i don't let junior win any games if possible how would you describe your parenting style because i was here for it okay <laughs> well it's so funny because i am absolutely not the mother i thought i would be i wrote a blog on mommy nation about that because when I was God mommy and auntie, I was so strict and I was like, love, love, you know, I thought I was going to be a drill sergeant. And then my son just comes and he has me wrapped around his little finger and thank God for his, my husband, his father, because he's the one who kind of, you know, instills the discipline. But the one thing he going to learn is that you, you're going to have to really win. You're going to have to, you're going you're gonna to have to dig deep, son. We are not giving you any W's around here, so... That was so funny. It was, it was very well received. And I think a lot of people, especially competitive people, were like, yes, teach them young. Yes, teach them young. Yes, 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 yes. We all are. I'm here for it, too. I'm like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, you and you talked about Mommy Nation and Mommy Nation, for those don't know, it's a reliable resource and community for moms to tackle motherhood. I'm just curious, like, you know, what was that moment that made you think Mommy Nation needs to be a thing? Yeah, well, I think for me, um, and I know you can relate to this, there is something about when you're a part of a team and when you're in a sport and you develop these great people who really support you to be great. Um, and so when I became a mom and I was like, oh my God, this is 10 times harder than training for the Olympics. Where is my team? Where is the squad? Where are the people? And so, you know, I looked out to try to find something that, you know, felt especially specifically supports black moms because we are having a unique journey in motherhood. Um, and so 
I created this community that started with 25 mothers blogging about their personal experiences and it has grown to over 800 blogs on the platform, 40,000 Instagram wow. followers, 700,000 views on the blogs. And I mean, when I tell you the community is just so vibrant, so rich, and I just want moms to feel like they're not alone. And it's still important for them to chase their dreams. Like, you know, you become a mom, that doesn't mean that your life ends, right? This is just a new chapter in your life. And so we really try to encourage them to continue walking in their own purpose while supporting them in every way that we can. So it's it's a huge passion project for me and I just love doing it. You know, I love that you say that because I feel the same way. I'm like, my son has me wrapped around his little finger and I feel like a sap sometimes. And I'm like, I know I'm not the only one to feel this way. So <laughs> I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've never really, I mean, I was part of the dance team, but I mean, I don't know if like, I was never part of like a sports, you know, thing like that. So I, I I think the same thing. I'm like, man, parenting is hard, you know? So I don't know if Renee feels the same way because she's been part of sports all her life, but I'm like, parenting is hard. So I'm glad that you made that community. Renee is a disciplinarian. Renee tries to discipline grown people as well as children. (laughs) Look at mommy. She just said it like, yeah. And that's my mommy. Look, this is, this is mommy nation. Uh, That's my, that's my snooker book and my mom tapping it on me. So my bad snooker book. There's a lot of, like boy moms right now because you have a son Cole has four so there's a lot of wrapped around fingers you know they say mama's boys that's the term I was looking for I'm seeing that there's probably a lot of mama's boys here but it's women's month and there's a lot of different imbalances being brought up in the sports community you know and so in the women's sports community it's it's out loud what's going on in the WNBA the NWSL are the things the same in track with women uh track runners and men like I'm just not tapped in there so is it the same imbalances it's a good question I also just wanted to quickly make a note of what Serena said too I think the beauty of what we do at mommy nation too is we share the real about motherhood right because I think a lot of times people want to sugarcoat it or put out just the best images of motherhood and you feel like am I struggling I mean something wrong with me because it's not easy and so for me it's like hey no we struggle like day-to-day trying to figure out what are the best choices to make for our children so that's the beauty of mommy nation too but you know to shift to what you're talking about Renee and you know why I said I really respect and appreciate so much of what you've done to like definitely shine a light on what's going on in the WNBA you know in track and field it's a little bit different right like we're, we're we're not like technically a part of a team we don't have like this collective bargaining like all the stuff that you guys have in the sport and I find that for us obviously yes there is definitely pay disparities right like you'll find the men in the hundred are making way more than women are making in the hundred but I also do find that If you're doing very well in the sport, there is great opportunities for the women to excel as well. So it doesn't, to me, feel like with the soccer team where it's like, wait a minute, these women winning the gold medals, but where is the money? You know, like it doesn't feel um, as as heavy as that. Um, For me, I think that a lot of the women in our sport It's kind of equal, the men and women. They all looking for opportunities, right? It's not like you're saying, well, over here, these men aren't showing up and showing out, yet there's this large pool of money for them, and there's not the same for the women. I definitely feel like there is a pay gap, and we obviously fight for that just like we fight for any other industry. But um, 
you know, one of the things that I think about the sport of track and field that has been a real blessing is, you know, there's so many black women who are excelling on the track. Like I look around, like now that I'm in the real world, I'm like, wow, in many rooms, I am one of one. And when I stood on that track, I was like one of seven, one of eight, right? Yeah. Like I was seeing my sisters excel and we were able to make money and able to do well. So, you know, I don't want to minimize the fact that there definitely are some ways that we can improve in our sport to be able to give women equal opportunities as men. But I will say that from my personal experience, I do feel like there are great opportunities for the women in our sport to be able to earn a living and to, to continue to chase their dreams. You could actually chase and catch. <laughs> <laughs> she caught him, I'm gonna tell you that. So you, you talked about being a working mom, you know, like, because I feel like we can all relate to being a working mom. But how do you personally, you know, balance, you know, because I'm intrigued by all women who who have businesses and who have kids. Right. You know, I want to ask every woman, uh, like, you're an how analyst. do you do it? Because you had your people own shows. ask me that. Right. Like people ask Renee and people ask me, people ask Cole, you know, everybody has their thing. They're different things. But how do you personally balance being a working mom and, you know, family time and all that stuff? Yeah, I, I don't know what that word balance is that you speak of. Right, Thank right. You. What is balance, right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. What I do is, I think for me, the, the best advice I got from a woman who was a judge in D.C. who had four children, was married and just doing all the things was, you know, she explained to me that you can't be great at everything at every moment. And so mm -hmm. I think when you relinquish this idea of being the best mom 24-7 and the best entrepreneur and the best wife 24-7, you give yourself that space and grace to be great at what you're doing at that yeah, moment. Love that, yes. What I do is when I'm with my son, I try to give him 100% of my energy and try to put the phones away and I try to be the best mom that I could be when I'm with him. And when I'm working, I'm fully focused on my work and you know, I give myself grace to be able to be great at all the things while prioritizing what's most important to me. So I make sure that I don't go two or three weeks just working, working, working without making sure I'm spending family time because they're my priority, you know? But I don't know this balance you speak of, <laughs> Serena. <laughs> Hey, I thought, I, like, again, I thought I was the only one. I'm yeah. like, man, it's hard. You know, like, people say balance, balance. Renee's great with time management, and I'm still <laughs> I'm still finding my groove with balance. So I'm so happy to hear you say that. It's a thing that I think you always, like, because, like I talked about, you're an analyst for track and field, an amazing one. You cover a lot of different things. You're on TV. You were on shows. You have a son. So we know that there's a balance there. But I also heard that you're a good dancer. Now, uh, oh, listen, Jamaican girl who can't cook or can't dance. I am a disgrace to my people because I should be cooking and dancing my tail off, but I'm over here just like flopping at life. But the funny thing is I used to dance when I was a kid. And when I lived in Jamaica, we had like this dance group and, um, and, and it made my bio like from high school. And I literally have been on Wikipedia, like sending notes, like you can take that out of my bio now. Like, 
Nah, they got to You got to pull up. Caribbean people, she just said two things. That for Caribbean people, we're like, oh, you don't cook and you don't dance. But I'm, I'm, my, my family's Dominican, so we're Caribbean too. So those are like two of the things that were like were instilled in us. I'm gonna lose my Caribbean card. Every, you know, people. <laughs> Listen. So I talked about you being an analyst uh, for track and field, and there's certain things that I just don't know that's going on. So I want you to unpack something for me. How is it that the Russian figure skater Camilla Valieva, who was caught doping while competing during the Winter Olympics, while Shakari Richardson, who smoked marijuana, which isn't a performance-enhancing drug during the qualifiers, was barred from the Summer Olympics? What was the difference between the two? I'm just trying to figure it out. I wish I could tell you the differences because it doesn't make a lot of sense to many of us in the world. So Shakari Richardson, who obviously took the world by storm, you know, going into the 2020 Olympics that were held in 2021 due to the pandemic. Um, you know, had uh, everybody was excited about her competing in the Olympics. And then we found out later that she had failed a drug test because she had smoked marijuana prior to competition, right? right. So as someone who, you know, is, has competed in the sport at the highest level, you know, my initial instinct was like, well, that's how it goes. We, all the, we know the rules. You're not allowed to have any kinds of substance in your body. And I never smoked weed, so I, don't, I didn't know the particulars of it. But I think it was mm -hmm. only like, I think maybe 72 hours. It wasn't even a long time. So I'm like, this is a lack of discipline, right? Like she, if you want to be an Olympic champion, you got to be disciplined. So I was like, okay, you know, it is what it is. And then obviously we learned more. She had lost her mom. There was just so much yeah. to the story Going that made it, again. yeah, made it so nuanced that, you know, I kind of, I felt really bad for Shakari because it was a bad situation. Um, and, you know, and obviously she was trying to cope the best way she knew how. Yeah. And, um, and unfortunately, she lost an opportunity to compete in the Olympics. What I don't understand is how <laughs> this young woman um, mm. actually took a performance enhancing drug, which right. none of us have to debate about like that's that is illegal. Like that is that we're all against that. And then I think from what I read and what my colleagues have expressed to me is the Federation said it would have, you know, it was more about her emotional, the emotional scar it would have left on her had she not been able to compete. And so... What about Shakari? Well, yeah, exactly. What, what about, about Shakari? And so she presented a very, I mean, her, her case is valid. What was the difference, you know? And of course, she wants to bring up race. She's like, the only difference I see is that I'm a young black woman and she's a young white girl. Well... That's what we all see, you know? She ain't telling no it lies. It's unfortunate so. because... If you're trying to teach a lesson, basically the lesson is there's certain people who can get away with it. So why not try? Because my thing is, if you're in the, the Winter Olympics and she got away with it, well, you know, we'll make her look really cute and she's young and then we might be able to get away with it. Whereas you're teaching in another sport in the summer Olympics is like, nah, it is what it is. You're done. Yeah. They wanted to make Shakari an example, right? You're going to use her as an example, but then you're going to lighten up on everyone else behind her. That just doesn't make any sense to me. So that's why I said it makes the Olympic committee look incompetent to me. Um, and I don't feel like any of the statements they have put out, you know, justify their actions. And so, you know, I just, I, I felt really bad for Shakari in the situation because I mean, we, I, I, I don't think for weed is performance enhancing. It'll I mean, slow you down. <laughs> no. Slow you down. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I want to ask you something, Sonia, because with track runners, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but you get your one shot. And when you're at your peak, you're at your peak. So 
what is that like for a runner now? Because it's not like she can go back and get the goals that she missed. So like, what what is that there? Yeah, it's, it's very tough. I remember in 2008 when I was favored to win the gold in Beijing and I won the bronze. It took me a long time to say I won. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm anointed. I feel you. Yes. You did win it True. though. That's yes, an accomplishment. It is yeah, but I understand. Yes. I understand. But you immediately, the minute you cross the finish line, you immediately are aware, I have to wait four more years to have this opportunity again. And most athletes don't even get one one shot, much less two. And this was going to have to be my third Olympics to win gold. So I think for Shakari, immediately it's like, oh my goodness, like I have to now wait four years. I have to pray that I'm running at my best, that I'm healthy. It's just so many factors that go into you getting a chance to compete at the Olympics that it is, you know, it, it, it's a tough realization. However, both these ladies made poor choices. <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I struggle with making it seem like poor, poor Shakari when at the end of the day, she made a poor choice that put her in the situation. Um, but yes, that realization that you have to wait four more years is really tough and daunting at times. She's fortunate though; it's three because they compete in twenty twenty one, so she oh, has true. less That's time. True. She'll That's you know true. she'll be a little bit younger than you would have been otherwise. But you know, I, I think for Shakari, it was probably a good like experience for her, and I think it will probably change the way she approaches her training, competition, and especially the mental side of things, right? Because like we talk about, it's, it, it boils down to discipline. Like you have to be. Yeah disciplined about this goal you have to want it more than anything else if you're going to be successful and had she gotten away with that how it had affected her going forward we don't know so hopefully it's a benefit to her no definitely I mean it's just a tough situation and I think about how fast it is that you all run and it's just not normal Sonia I want you to know it's not (laughs) normal how fast you humans are running I said the same Mm -hmm. thing to Chris Johnson because he raced a cheetah would you ever race an animal I'm just curious like I just like I don't (laughs) Was wild when he told me You're that. Line up, <laughs> run him. <laughs> I want to see you can I beat it. Like as long as it's not gonna eat me or something, I would have raced him <laughs> for real. I mean, because the fact that you guys are racing animals and we're humans, I just it doesn't just I don't take that lightly. But I wanted to ask you one last question because you have a son and a family that you're building for and with, and your son is watching the throne right now. So, what does generational wealth mean to you? Oh man, that's a great question, and it means everything. You know, it is why Ross and I work so hard, and it's why I think it's important that we keep you know, breaking the glass ceiling and kicking down doors that we, you know, may not have usually had opportunities and spaces to be in. And so, you know, everything that I do now is very strategic. You know, it's like, what, how will this pay off, you know, 15, 20 years from now? How do I see my son taking this over? How am I securing, you know, the, his, his future and making sure that he's able to stand on my shoulders, you know, not having to do the things that we, you know, some of the things where we struggled, I want him to be able to be strong and smart and, you know, plan for the next generation. So, I mean, that is just huge for us. Ross Ross and I talk about that all the time. And, you know, we want to prepare him for greatness. Love it. Let's go. You know, that's we we say it's a generational thing over here at MoCo. Sonya Richards, Ross, baby, the four time Olympian, all of that. The host analyst killing it in everything you do. Shouts to Mommy Nation. Thank you for joining us on Montgomery and Company. Oh, thanks for having me. This was awesome. Invite me back anytime. All right, so let's play a little this or that. 
I'm going to start out right now with, would you rather have a job that pays you $70 an hour but lets you work from home or a job that pays you $100 an hour but requires you to be physically present? Would you rather? What time do I need to be there in the morning? Give me my 30 extra I'm working nine to five. There you go. Hey, uh, hey. Uh, uh, uh. Me too. Right. So what is it? If the money is out there, I'm going after it. I'm going in. So Smith, you're taking $100 an hour in. and I'm going in. I'm going I'm in. I'm going in. I'm going in. Going in. What, do you, what do you say, Serena? Because I'm curious. Oh, I'm this about is to blow a no-brainer. This you're is going a no-brainer. Okay, so let me throw it on here. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, then this is let, crazy. Because maybe, so is everybody $100 going into the office? absolutely. Who would have you going, going to me. You going I'm, to? Nah, I'm oh, not going. Please. I'm taking 70 and I'm you working from home. Right. Okay, mm, so that mm. was my question. That was going to be my flip around. Okay, so, you know, Corona is crazy. It was 2019 and, you know, people were going into the office. People were working. Would you, during Corona, have taken $100 to go in? That extra 30 to go in, would you have taken it? No, and I wouldn't take it without Corona. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm $70. I'm staying home. I'm staying home because I don't care what nobody says. When you're working from home, you're working on your projects as well as working on whoever's projects. Oh, don't say that. No, you know that's not the truth. We ain't done. Don't say that. She said, Renee, don't be blowing people's spots up. I'm just saying, you can do better. So, if you're working at the office, there's more of an eye over you. There's more people watching you. You're on the work computer. You're not able to, you know, even working from home, you can take the kids to the, the whatever they need. To they the get park. sick. <laughs> you're absolutely <laughs> like, right. You can, I'm working from home. That extra $30 an hour, while it is very beneficial, I can do so much more from home. It's a luxury to work from home. So I'm taking that $70 an hour and I'm done like I, I agree keep the 30 and i'll keep my gas let me, too. well let me ask Shasta you a question Roy. no 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 have you been to Publix lately have you swiped the card <laughs> and bought some groceries lately yes well, girl, I, I think let me so, tell you something Serena. have you i you can't even find uncrustables in the grocery <laughs> store right now mm-hmm. so what i'm saying no is the inflation is going to make people want to go in for that 30 because but, but let me I'm tell you what you right this now, is what i'm trying to tell you right now cole these days people are working on their own stuff so that inflation my side hustle is now a whole nother stream mm-hmm. of income that i got coming in that mm-hmm. i can work on in my time not while working that. on my i'm gonna bet on myself so that's what the $70 an hour is saying. Go I'm a bet on myself that I can work from home and I can build up a project that can be some little side change rather than the extra little $30 an hour that I would be getting from my, and look, that's just a bet that I would make on myself. Plus I like being at home. I don't necessarily want to be around humans all the time. And that's just me. Cause I'm, I'm a little well, anti-social, so true. people that's would true. be shocked to hear that. But I like to be in the house at all times. Like I never want to leave. So if I can actually stay there, Oh, I'm about I'm to. Uh, I'm go- call me after five o'clock because I'm about to bust their pockets wide open. They say hundred dollars an hour. See, seventy dollars an hour is at home is nine to five. You can stop at five o'clock. You ain't paying you past five. But when you go in and they say hundred dollars an hour, oh, we got some overtime. I'm blowing their pockets okay, up at a hundred dollars like an hour. Too. There's two sides to the coin. That's why it's a would you rather. There's always two sides, snookabooker. Oh yeah, and so the other part about it is, if I did take the seventy dollars an hour, it would be because I've done some research and done some interviewing and got me another part-time job so Ooh, I can double it up and I can do two and make $140 okay, an hour. I got hour. two <laughs> jobs. <laughs> so that would keep me at home. So therefore, I'm still making more than the person going into the office. I'm sure so that's, that's a good that's, that's 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 that's
Yes, like, it is. Working it from home, the is. pandemic has shown us that working from home, I'm just even saying like if you're a mom or anything, absolutely. it's so hard like to get, yeah. you can do so much. You could work from home and, and be with your kids right when oh, they get yeah. home. I just pick them up from school. You know what I mean? Like there's just so many different things that the pandemic honestly opened that door wide open. Companies figured out now how oh, to function yeah. from home. So it's oh, like, absolutely. you're not even missing a beat. Yeah. If you call anybody for customer service now, you hear the baby crying in the background. Yeah. You hear the dog <laughs> yes. barking. Yeah, you hear, true. you know, the door closing. They say, oh, excuse me, I'm working from home. I said, well, you know, I know you ain't got all that going on in the office. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not calling you because I'm stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you. And also, like you talk about how it changed the pandemic, changed working. Now, almost every job that I know is like a hybrid job. Like the place I used to work for, they actually gave everybody a laptop because if you don't feel well, which, you know, that's the way it is. Or if your kids are sick or whatever have you. okay, go ahead. Stay home. Log on at 830. And then they also have hybrid hours. So let's say that I think they like going. Like you might your days might be Monday, Wednesdays, and Friday. Friday might be everybody's day to be in, but Monday and Wednesday are your days to be in. Tuesday and Thursday, someone else's day to be in. So, you know, it did. It, it did open up a we lot of doors. It, yeah. it opened up a I lot like of doors for model. women, I would say more so, because we were the yes. ones who were being punished when our children were not sick, not taking away from any single fathers who were to do the same thing, but a lot of the women's, sure. women's workforce was if the kids were sick, 99% of the time, the female's the one who stayed home. Absolutely. And what if you're at work and, and they're like, come get your kid right now? Yeah. Some people literally can't yes. leave. Like, I mean, yes. some people's jobs, they actually can't leave. So, yes. yeah. I mean, the pandemic really opened up a whole new world. And Cole, you made a good point for women, especially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No I mean, and the hybrid model, I, I, I was actually going to say that, but I don't know if that was an option, but I do it's like not. the hybrid model. <laughs> it's not. Here we go with it's not. I like I like a hybrid model just because just because well, I feel like sometimes it's a little difficult to concentrate at home. We've been working from home since the pandemic. And while it is a luxury for me, mm-hmm. I still need my little bit of space of quiet and things where I don't feel like I have to tend to my family because I don't know if anybody else feels this, but I don't know if it's like a, a woman thing. But I talked to one of my professors one time and she said that women, we hold a lot of guilt. So I try to let go of that. But sometimes like if I'm not paying attention to my family and I'm working, I feel a little guilty about that especially when they're right in front of my face so i do yeah because sam's have trying to take care of everybody all the time and still send that's an email i'm too. like like yeah too. so you, yeah you see so, so i do so need my workspace that's the only reason why i do like going into physical work the other thing is women are you know the, we've been known from the beginning of time as multitaskers yeah. so yeah, you know for sure uh my husband we always took him he's all Cut that down. Right? I can. I said I can do more than one thing at one time. I can walk and chew gum. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, that's my that's my whole jam. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can do chew more than four one things thing at, at once. Time. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I was gonna say something uh, along with the multitasking thing is kind of an expectation at this point. Mm, if yeah. you think about yeah. it, yeah. If you want to live. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you have a family, it's it's actually it's it's funny because even though we're both on here, I don't ever think about what we're going to eat. I just have I'm just gonna, I man, literally I, don't I think ever think about it. Do I think about it all the time. Exactly. Like I never like Snookabooka <laughs> is just on one today, but I don't ever think about it. So to that point, there's things that I don't even occupy my mind that I know we need to do every day that I just know is going to get done. Like, it's yes, like that's I don't my ever. People. Think about 
what's in the refrigerator or anything of that nature or even just like I don't even take care of myself this is going to sound bad but i don't take as good care of myself as i probably should yeah. it, but you know I, I what i mean you so amen on that <laughs> you know, she yes, probably doesn't take that. care of herself she doesn't i can she I, did I, so I that's why it's like serena sure. if serena wasn't doing everything serena does i would probably it would be bad serena and a whole crew of other people <laughs> yeah i was like look if i don't take care of you your family's gonna kill me so i don't want no problems forget that serena stuff serena <laughs> has a whole and a whole crew, crew of other exactly. people let's just, just say it like exactly. it is I mean, let's facts just say the facts. it i will work like all like she knows it'll be one o'clock in the morning and she's like what are you doing and i'm like i gotta get my emails below 30 like that's what i always like every night i try to get my emails like below 30 or get my emails to 15 and so if that takes me until 2 a.m it takes me until 2 a.m if it takes me like i just stay up until it's done she yes. don't want me to be staying up because she'll know that i was on camera from 10 to 6 so it's that it, like you know like after this we've had a full day today after this i'm about to take junior to practice when we get home i'm gonna start tackling yeah, emails I mean, because and get around the work to it from home model does doesn't really give you a time to really take a pause you're working all the time yeah and some people take their pause driving that's their mental yeah. wind down time going into the office and that's their mental wind down time coming out of the office so that's really a huge piece of it and I even like yeah. you said I went from working in the office to working at home and yeah you do get overwhelmed with thinking you can do Definitely. everything Definitely. in that very moment like the teacher might hit you with a message and if I was at work I would look at myself okay I'll hit it later but exactly. when you're at home working you're emailing you get a phone call you're answering the phone call then I'm like oh let me take stuff out the fridge let me so, okay I thought that for dinner oh Vance says I have this let me make the list it's like a whole bunch of things that you're doing yeah. in your, not only just in your mind though the stuff that you were at the office you don't have that focus because the, the refrigerator is not right there you know that's true. the, the I washing mean, machine not that's right true. there so. So that's, no that's completely true and so it's like while there are, are perks to one side there's also perks to the other and there's pros and cons so it's more Absolutely. of your preference but the main thing that I'm hearing right now is women gotta do a lot whether it's Definitely. in the office or not women gotta do a lot Coming up next on the show, we have Senator Sonia Halpern, Georgia State Senator of District 39. Senator Sonia at the YMCA, we just bumped into each other. We're both affiliated. We were doing a Christmas giveaway and we just started talking and there's so much synergy. There's so many connections. I mean, she's Mrs. Georgia, I feel like. I didn't know all the things and I started to research and look into you. You're the first African-American and first Georgian to co-chair the President's Advisory Committee of, on the Arts, a position to which you were appointed by President Barack Obama? Please wow. tell me about that. How did wow. that become a thing? Like, how does that, like, how did you even get to that position? I don't know how it works. So, you know, it's interesting. And politics is really funny, too, because you really just never know where people are going to end up. So let me just say that. So I had first met, at the time, State Senator Barack Obama, who was a state senator in Illinois, and he was launching a campaign for U.S. Senate. 
And so my husband and I have been really, we're big Democrats, big supporters of Democrats nationally. So we had heard about, you know, then State Senator Barack Obama and hosted him here in Atlanta for a fundraiser, of course, was excited to see him make U.S. Senate. And then, of course, we both dived in to see him become president. And through that time and through those relationships, I mean, he knew I was passionate around the arts. And at the time, I was on the board of the National Black Arts Festival here in Atlanta. And so an opportunity came and he appointed me to the President's Advisory Committee on the Arts. And that happens to be one of the national boards at the John F. Kennedy Performing Arts Center in Washington, D.C., which is, of course, our nation's preeminent cultural center. And so I was appointed to that board. And then three years later, uh, he appointed me as chair of that board, and that is when I became, as you said, the first Georgian and the first African-American to be appointed to PACA uh, as a chair since its inception in the 50s. So the President's Advisory Committee on the Arts um, has been, like I said, around since the 50s, but was really started even before the Kennedy Center existed, before, because the Kennedy Center, of course, is named after John F. Kennedy after he was Mm -hmm. assassinated. But it existed really for the president of the United States to have a number of people from around the country who were involved in the arts community and were leaders in their own communities who could give some advice and advise around the arts and culture and the nation. And eventually that emanated out into the John F. Kennedy Center. And so I was excited and really pleased to be part of that organization for years. We serve at the pleasure of the president. So when that president changed and became the former guy, those of us on my particular board rolled off. Many of us, including myself, are still really connected to the Kennedy Center and love the work that they're doing every day. That's awesome. I love that. And you're right. You never know where somebody's going to end up because he started out as Senator Barack Obama and then became president. Now, you were the founding member of the Atlanta School for the Arts Foundation and you got appointed to the arts. So I'm just curious, why the arts? What's your connection to the arts? You know, and and that's a great question. I am deeply passionate around the arts. I myself am not an artist. I mean, I did take piano and I played saxophone like in high school and stuff. And I I do. I, I love the arts. I remember literally my first field trip. I grew up in a small town in New York State, just an hour or so away from New York City in Manhattan. And I remember on a field trip, we went into the city and we saw the show Annie on Broadway. And I just, I fell in love Mm. with musical theater. I appreciate and really understand how the arts can connect communities. And the arts actually is a unifier, right? We're able through the arts and all different kinds of disciplines to be able to understand worlds that may not be ours, to be able to express ourselves, to be able to tackle difficult subjects. I think the arts has such a wonderful role to play in really kind of putting a stake in the ground and where our thinking is at any given moment in time, whether that's through music or dance or the visual arts. I mean, all of that I think is super important and those disciplines need to be invested in. And so the Atlanta School for the Arts idea which we still hope to come to fruition. We really took over the last three years or so, really looked at some of the leading, you know, preeminent high schools 
of the arts, like think fame, right? We're talking about yes. like really, you know, pre-professional, you know, preparatory high school uh-huh. for the arts where you're getting equal amounts of your academics and equal amounts of your artistry, whichever discipline that is that you're in. And we believe that Atlanta, which does not have one, we are in this metro region, one of the wow. few cities at this point that truly does not have a true school for the arts that Atlanta of all places needs one. We're, How we're is this that huge, possible? Exactly. Mm. Huge creative <laughs> economy. We are influencing the culture and we don't have one. Now there have been starts and stops with it. Like North Atlanta high school, which I know Jasmine guy came what? through, mm. you know, that's considered kind of the art school, but it's not the same as literally equal amounts of instruction in your academics as yeah. your arts each day. It's it's a different it's a different model altogether. And we believe Atlanta needs one and we believe that it should be a private public partnership. And in an ideal world and we before the pandemic shut everything down, we were in, you know, good conversation with Atlanta public schools around this idea because we believe that APS really should be that public entity to run mm-hmm. the school. But the reason why we think public-private is that right mix is because when we look at other schools around the nation that are successful and we talk to them and said, for best practices, what works, what we thought is that the private foundation would be responsible for the arts part, the arts funding piece, raising the money yeah. here to make That's sure smart. that the arts could happen. Because we know that every time there's budgetary pressure on a school system, the arts is the they thing that the goes. Yes. And in an art school, you don't want any hint that that could actually impact the students' experiences. That's so no, smart. That's, no, it's so, so smart. smart. Yeah. I, this probably has no relation, but it makes me think of Save the Last Dance. I don't know why, but arts in school, and I think about how many artists, for whatever type of artist you are, how many times can they not get the proper training or the proper tools to learn like there could have been a mega stars a pianist that we never known could have been the greatest pianist of all That's time right. because they might have grew up in a certain area i was thinking the same thing that i don't think that there's enough programs to really cater to the arts and we're an artistic family like i'm an artist i'm a performer so i understand the importance of the arts so definitely agree i think that there's not enough programs to, to because cater where do to kids them. even perform? actually when research out there too when those programs, the artistic programs, were booming in schools back in the day, they found that students who had musical programs or artistic programs, they learned more. They did better. They made more rounded, yes. uh, better rounded students. Their memories were better. Right. Yes. So, you know, it's not just the aesthetic part of it. It's also the educational part of what it does for learning. That's absolutely right. I mean, when you think about, and every study shows this. It teaches you problem solving. The arts teach you flexibility in your thinking. Yeah. The arts teaches you, you know, how to approach problems in a different way and how to think creatively. And really, I mean, I hate to say it like these are soft skills because the reality is these are the skills that every single employer is looking for, no matter whether you stay in the arts or not. Every employer ultimately is looking for these same characteristics that are developed 
develop through exposure to the arts. And you mentioned something that I want to capitalize on for a moment, because you said, imagine all of the folks who could have been superstars that were never kind of discovered. One of the real premises in the model that we are kind of putting forth is that equity is at the center of that work. And so Mm. in our vision, prior training is not the barometer by which you're actually accepted in the audition process, right? It's it's talent. And it's not, oh, because my parents had enough money to get me training, I have an advantage. It's talent that's being looked at. And also, there are other schools in this area that also use grades and behavior reports as barometers also for whether or not you could actually be accepted. Again, in our vision around that equity piece, again, we don't want poor grades or poor behavior to be the thing that dictates whether or not you're appropriate for this school program. Because we know that oftentimes kids who don't do well academically in school really just need the outlet. And oftentimes it's the arts and that work. And if they can get steeped in the thing that they really love, we'll see the improvement in their grades. I love that. Right. And because they know that they won't be able to keep doing the art thing if they don't perform yeah that's their motivation that's their motivation to keep keep, to keep going there's such a need for that well all over but in georgia period i went to pebble brook high school and that is considered like uh, the cobb county center of excellence for performing arts but those kind of schools are so scarce because we had so many kids from other districts come into our school because they wanted to study performing arts and there weren't really other schools that offered that kind of catering to the arts just like like that at school so you had kids coming from an hour away so there is a huge need like there's a huge gap to fill you know with, with this kind of attention well also it gives those students a community oh yeah you know if you don't have those programs in the school that how would you find out if someone loved piano or love right. dance or whatever you know it'd be very difficult so when you put those programs in the school it gives those students a way of having a community for those particular activities just like sports does so you have right. a community students who think like you want to do the same kind of things and so it builds a better student as well i cannot remember for the life of me what musician it was but he said when he was little that he was tested they told him that he would never you know mentally be able to do his mindset was so not scattered but they couldn't figure out what was going on with him they didn't think he was going to be able to speak he's a singer and I can't remember what his name is and he said when he found music he found himself wow and that's how he actually got through learned everything, how to speak and learned how to speak, learned how to express himself. He was just talking about how music actually saved him because people had kind of given up on even his wow. parents. They told his parents, oh, he's never going to make it past this or he's not going to be able to do that. And so when he found music, it actually just opened up a whole nother door. And that's for a lot of kids who are also getting in trouble. So that is very true. And even during the pandemic, at the very early part of the pandemic, a couple of things about the arts, right? Every single one of us, and and again, I say I'm not artistic because truly I'm not. Now, I I do say I'm creative because I do think I'm creative. And I can know that's the thing. And I know it when I see it too. But but all of us, every single one of us, if you think about at the top of the pandemic, because the arts connects us, 
everybody was looking at that for that connection. We were all at home. You started yeah. seeing people put signs in yes. their windows to connect yes. with people walking. You started seeing all the DJs doing their dance parties through Zoom, and we yep. were all joining in. Shouts on that. out to Club Quarantine, DJs. Yes. 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 <laughs> and and all yes. of the, you know, kind of, yeah, the the parties and stuff that were happening through Zoom to connect us, but we were all literally intertwined in music and in artistic endeavors is what gave us that connectivity to humanity when we were all isolated in our own houses. And for kids who were in art schools where other kids all of a sudden were home and shut down, those kids had such a great connection still because they were still creating music. I can see that. They they didn't feel as much of that sense of isolation as folks who were just in kind of your traditional, typical academic setting felt. That's really cool. I I did find out who it was. Ed Sheeran. What? Mm, Ed wow. Sheeran, yes, yeah, that's who that's, it was. Wow, wow, that's crazy. He was the one who said that he, music kind of saved him because they people had just said that he wasn't going to all the things he wasn't going to be. They thought he had a disability, but he really didn't. And um, Sonia, I know your mom actually worked with people with disabilities, and your parents both graduated from HBCUs. You're yes. a product of HBCUs. So I, am I. Know. My parents, you see Snook right there. They graduated from West Virginia State University. Her and my Diddy. So you talked about having resources. At the cusp of it is having resources. And we, we look at HBCUs. Uh, you know, there was a quote that says HBCUs are underfunded, never under talented. And I think there's a parallel there with the arts and how HBUs are going. So what, you know, with seeing everything that's going on with the HBCUs, what are your thoughts? I know that there's been bomb threats, you know, there's been a lot of different things going on. What, what are your thoughts around what's happening? Cause it's a big topic right now with why are HBCUs being attacked? The interesting thing with HBCUs is it's true. They've always been underfunded, but never without talent. And the truth is they're so important and critical throughout these you know, centuries because they still do graduate so many black folks who are first generation college graduates. And that the impact of that then on families is enormous because when you start to think about opportunities that open up in terms of job or or maybe even higher paying jobs and that kind of stuff, I think that in general, anything that's remotely in the sphere of isms, racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, sexism, like anything in that space of isms right now all of those things are are bubbling up. I mean, we're seeing more hatred outright. We're seeing more um, laws that are trying to be passed that actually make that hatred kind of enshrined in law. So it's a scary time. There is a huge power dynamic happening right now as our country and certainly our state is shifting more majority minority and the power structures are changing. Definitely. And so I think at the larger level, kind of that's what we're seeing. Our HBCUs specifically remain critical to educating our young black folks. Definitely. And they do a phenomenal job of that across every single industry sector. We are graduating out folks who become community leaders, who become business leaders, who are giving back to the community, who are mentoring and bringing others along. 
And I think for me, you know, my parents both went to Tougaloo College. At the time, it was Tougaloo, Mississippi. Now it's in Jackson, Mississippi. They both are first, you know, were first in their family to graduate from college. And the opportunities that they got allowed them to leave Mississippi. And they both grew up on farms in Jim Crow, Mississippi. My dad's 81 and my mom's 79. Wow. And so they had the opportunity to craft a career path for themselves that meant that my life and my sister's life was very different from the lives of then some of my cousins who are still in Mississippi. And that's not to make a judgment on our lives. They're, no. ju- they're just different, you know? Right. Definitely. Right. right. And that's that's the effect. That's the HBCU effect, you know, that it gives that opportunity. You talked about a lot of first-time graduates and their families, a lot of support my Diddy had a football scholarship to Purdue, turned it down to go to an HBCU because he knew that he would get that support he needed. So to that point, that's why we need things like HBCUs. We need things like the arts. You actually, though, yourself, you know I had to bring it up. You graduated and got your MBA from the University of Hartford, baby. And y'all know, y'all know what's around that area, okay? Y'all know. So you spent the stint over there in Connecticut. What was her? Ski land like the women's basketball scene is heavy over there. I try to tell people it's heavy over there. It is. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I went to the University of Massachusetts for undergrad and then kind of uh-huh. went directly to get my graduate degree. I mean, the thing is, yeah, the women's basketball, I mean, like y- y'all show out. Every, you know, we, we just know every, every year. I mean, and people... Everybody is really excited. And if I think about even, you know, kind of when I was there, I mean, women's basketball has become so much more mainstream now, like in terms of how we all embrace it and how we all want to go to see the games and stuff. But I mean, y'all made it really exciting. And it is part of the reason why I think that, you know, it rose up in the ranks and just in people's minds around sports and the kind of sports they want to see and the kind of athleticism that we can see on the on the on the court or on the field from women athletes that is not just men out there, you know, really creating exciting basketball in this case but just exciting sports to watch and be part of love it hey i like that energy we need that at the dream game checks in the mail baby okay because you know we bleed (laughs) (laughs) oh but you know like to that point you know you you talked about how the hbcu experience gave your parents a chance to give you guys a different experience but that's what uconn did for me uconn gave me a chance to i came from west virginia you know similar i came from the country like mississippi and it's not judging anybody still in west virginia but it let me see the world it let me go on a whole different pathway and even you know i have different families now i have a connecticut family i have minnesota family atlanta family and so i talk about changing the course of things all the time and we always say it's a generational thing here in my and company and we always ask about you know generational wealth and what that means to you because I outwardly say you know even becoming a general partner at Valor Ventures is to create generational wealth for minorities specifically women specifically like that's my focus that's my goal so I'm curious what does generational wealth mean to you yeah generational wealth means that you've 
it's not just that you've got something to pass down to your children or your grandchildren, right? It really, I think it is partially even just the way you see the world in terms of what is possible. And then how do you leverage what is possible for your own family in the areas that, you know, are the typical ways to create wealth. So whether that's land ownership and being able to keep that land to pass it down, whether that is investments in stocks and being able to teach that to your children. I mean, I think part of the thing about generational wealth that a lot of times as black folks, we don't realize because we're new to this. I mean, there's only so many generations back you can count. We're new to this generally. It's teaching your kids and it's allowing them to see the things that build value and the things that don't build value. And the more Mm. you do the things that build value, the more you will have to be able to leave to your kids. A lot of time, you know, if you think about like the private wealth managers, a lot of times non-black families are coming in with their, their, their grandparents are bringing their grandchildren in at seven years old to talk yep. about money, to talk about saving, to talk about credit and how to use it or not how to use it, to talk about making investments that have long-term benefit and not just short-term gain. We are such a consumer society and everything around us always tells us spin, 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 spin. But you got to learn how to save if you're going to have something that you can pass down that your family can keep. That's the other thing we've got now. If you think about even here in Atlanta, you've got families that have been in homes forever that pass them down to that next generation who can't hold on to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we know all about yes, it. Yes, because they don't know how to. They don't know how to. No, because they need the money. And so they're like, okay, grandma gave me this house. I can get quick money by selling it. And then in the long term, which is what we found out with a lot of the coastal properties yes. that African-Americans actually owned, what happened was is that the grandparents, the great-grandparents fought to keep it, gave it to the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, and they sold it. And then the developers came in there and took over all the land and made millions that's exactly wow right. let's just be for real there are a lot of times especially what i witness here with our minority populations is their parents have scrapped scrubbed you know big borrowed or whatever to have that place to call their own and then they pass away well the kids don't sell it they don't do anything with it they just sit there and they twiddle their thumbs fight amongst each other and then bam you know the property's gone for taxes and and definitely there's no generational wealth there because you know someone has came and bought it for five dollars when you could have paid the taxes on it yeah. and, and did something with and it so a lot huge. of them is just they don't know what to do it's too easy i think they've gotten it and they don't know about how people have had to struggle to, to, keep to it. get it and keep it yeah. so that's what we do a lot yeah in our race we don't because if you were from Mississippi, like you said, and we're from West Virginia, well, our houses might not look like the houses in New York or in Maryland or in D.C. They're little, you know, the land is what's valuable. That's not the value. Right. That's, yeah, right. that's the yeah. value. That's exactly right. But it's yeah. being, it's talking about it. And I think, I think you make a great point because some of it is just what's taboo and what's not taboo, right? A lot of time we don't want to talk about things like a will, True. right? We yeah. don't want to talk about things like money because we do say that's my business. That's not my children's yeah. business. And there's information we don't even want to share 
across our family that we keep private that can sometimes in the long run hurt too. Absolutely. Exactly. You know, there was actually on Insecure, there was an episode where that was a real thing. Like she had to bring her friend in to talk to her parents because her parents would literally not do it. And that's another thing. You know, Jamel Hill came on here and she talked about know your banker, have a banker, get outside of that box of just like you just deposit your money and take it out. That's another level of it that you're talking about. Talk about the wills. Talk about the situation, the financial situations you're in. You ain't got to tell everybody all of your business. Like, I know that people don't want, you don't have to tell (laughs) them every single penny that you have, but conversations do need to be had. And we thank you, Senator Sonia, for having a conversation with us here on Montgomery & Company, because we like to think that this is a family Mm -hmm. conversation, and we just Mm -hmm. pass out nuggets to whoever wants to listen in. You gave us a lot of them, so thank you for joining us here on Montgomery & Company. So (laughs) glad to talk with you guys this afternoon. Thank you. So March Madness is upon us as we talked about. And you know we bleed blue over here. UConn women's basketball was the number two seed in the Bridgeport region. So we're pulling for our Huskies. Let's go. And then, you know, it's been an eventful week because... We were in Austin this past weekend, Serena and I. We got to meet the whole Levitard and Friends crew. Roy, he's our producer. We see him every week, but we had never met everyone in person. So it was really dope to join the show. It was a live studio audience. Well, I shouldn't even say studio. It was out on the terrace. The fans were engaged. I want to say thank you to them because they said thank you to me. And again, it's a family around here. And with MoCo, it's a generational thing. We'll catch y'all next week. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com